Matthew 13, verse 24. <clears throat> says, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is large, larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. And the field is the world, and as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had bought, uh, all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. <clears throat> 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we pray uh, that tonight you would, um, Lord, that we would be like a scribe who has been fully trained in the kingdom of God. Lord, who knows and understands, Lord, the meaning of your word. Lord, who is able to bring forth both those things that are old and those things that are new out of the treasure that we have, uh, Lord, from your word. And so, Father, we pray that tonight you would teach us, just as you did your disciples on earth, that you would give to us understanding, Lord, knowing that without your spirit, we cannot uh, understand, Lord, properly, Lord, unto obedience, unto true faith, uh, Lord, the word of God, that we need you, Lord, we need you, uh, Lord, to open our eyes, Lord, to open our hearts and our mind so that we might behold wonderful things uh, from your precious word. And so, Father, we pray that your word would be wonderful to us and that you would unfold to us, Lord, the very wisdom of God. So be with us tonight. Lord, help us as we study your word. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so here in chapter 13 of Matthew, there are many parables that Jesus gives. The entire chapter is devoted to these parables that Jesus used to teach the people concerning the nature of the kingdom of God, right? This is what uh, the purpose of these are. We dealt last week with the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils, uh, which was describing why it is that there's this variety of response to the preaching of the gospel, right? To the word of God that is being sown into the world, right? Not all people who hear the word of God does it produce good fruit in them, but rather only in some, only those that are the good soil. And it's necessary for the word to land upon a good heart, right? Then and only then will it produce good fruit. And we know from other passages that this good heart must be prepared by God, right? The good heart must be brought about by the Holy Spirit of God. This according to John chapter 3, that you must be born again, right? You must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. And in order for the word of God, the seed of God's word, to produce good fruit in a man, his heart must be changed by the Holy Spirit. Then that seed that is implanted will produce good fruit. But those that are not changed by the Spirit, they hear the word of God as well, and it does not produce good fruit. Some people, it's in one ear and out the other, such as that that is sown among the path. Some people receive it with joy for a moment, but they have no root in them. And then when the tribulations and persecutions come because of the word of God, they fall away and so they produce no fruit. Others receive it in a, a temporary sense as well, but the cares of life and the deceitfulness of riches come and choke out the word so that it does not bear any fruit, right? Any fruit that has endurance or that has perseverance, only some momentary glimpses here and there, but there's no endurance in these people. And this is why Jesus says later, that it is by your endurance that you will gain your life, that we have to have endurance. The one who endures, the one who perseveres, he's the one that will enter into the kingdom of God. So here he's giving more of these parables to describe what the kingdom of God is like, right? So that we can understand it. Uh, but also, as we saw last week, these parables are making a delineation between the righteous and the wicked right, between the believer and the unbeliever, because many people are hearing these parables and it's in one ear and out the other. They have no idea what he's talking about and they walk away saying, you know, who is this man and what is he, what is he saying, right? What is he talking about? And it doesn't benefit them at all. But the disciples 
they are benefiting from it because they're going to him asking for more wisdom, asking for him to teach them and to explain them so that they can understand these things and they come to the right conclusions. And so it is beneficial to them. And that's how we want to be, right? We want to be like the disciples who are growing and increasing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's pick up in verse 24. Verse 24, and this is the parable of the tares among the wheat, which is a commonly misinterpreted parable, right? A commonly misinterpreted parable. Here, the parable is here, and then the explanation is later. So we'll just, we'll deal with it when we get to the explanation, but we'll reread this here and then move on to the mustard seed and the leaven and then deal with the tares, okay? So it says in 24, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. While his men were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of that landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So here, this parable of this uh, landowner who is sowing his field with good seed, and then an enemy comes and mixes in amongst his good seed, bad seed or tares, so that when the crop begins to sprout, there's a mixture of good and bad that are co-mingled together in this field, right? That's the problem that he has the dilemma that has been brought about. The slaves want to know, should we go and uproot the tares and try to get them and separate them from the wheat? And the landowner is the one who says, no, leave them alone for the time being, right? Leave them alone because if you try to separate, then you might uproot the wheat as well, but rather let them grow up together. And then at the time of harvest, then we will make a separation between the wheat and the tares. They'll take the wheat and bring it into the barn, and then they'll take the tares, and it will be burned with fire, and that separation will be dealt with at a later date. So not now, but later. Verse 31, the parable of the mustard seed. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is lar larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Here, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a mustard seed, right? According to Jesus. The point being here that the mustard seed is smaller than all other seeds. In terms of seeds, the mustard seed is a very small seed, so small that no one would ever anticipate or expect something this small, this tiny, to produce the type of plant that it produces. Though it is smaller than the other seeds, in the end, the plant it produces is larger than all of the other garden plants, and it becomes a tree, a tree so great that the birds of the air can come and nest in its branches. It has very insignificant, very small, very humble beginning, and then what it produces in the end far exceeds anyone's expectation, right? That's the point that Jesus is making. 
And this is the way it is in terms of the kingdom of God. In this present life, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, right? In that, it is small, it is insignificant, right? The kingdom of God is not growing, right, in these overtly uh, outward ways, in terms of outward power, worldly power, right? You don't see it in Washington. You don't see it in these great centers of power in terms of worldly power and prestige, right? The kingdom of God is found in these small places like this, right? Where believers are gathered and this isn't a significant event in the eyes of the world, right? The world sees this and says, who are these people, right? What are they doing, right? It's not making headline news. It's not anything important. People are going about their day and they give no thought or no concern or care for these things. But in the end, the kingdom of God will become a kingdom that is so great that it actually outmatches all the kingdoms that this world has ever seen. And it will overpower all of them in its final form when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven and when he comes in his power. In this life, it is insignificant, but on the day of revelation, it will become very significant, right? It will far exceed anyone's expectations or what anyone ever thought, right? This is the way it is with the kingdom of God. And this is how it always is with the kingdom of God, the true church. I'm not talking about the false church. The true church is insignificant, small. It is considered contemptible by many, many people, both in the world and in the nominal or false church. They care nothing about the true grace of God and the true word of God. They don't want those things. They want worldly power, worldly recognition, worldly fame, worldly fortune. But the kingdom of God is not about those things, right? It is waiting until the life to come for it to be revealed in its full power, in its full manifestation, though among the righteous, the power of God's kingdom is here, right? It's seen in the change that takes place in the life of the believer, the miraculous power of God that converts one from being dead in their sins to being alive in Christ and changes them. But again, this is hidden from this world because it is insignificant and it is small and contemptible in their eyes. Okay, a couple of examples of this. Genesis 15. Genesis 15. This is what is revealed as well to Abraham. The same truth is what he's experiencing in his own life. And, yet, and then he's giving a glimpse by faith into what will come according to the promise of God. Okay. Genesis 15, 1 to 6. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and my heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you were able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Here, Abraham is a 
singular, isolated, solitary individual, right? Who has no heir, no heir from his own body. His heir is a slave born in his household. And yet God tells him, you will have an heir, you will have a son, and ultimately in the end, your descendants will be more than the stars of the sky, more than you can even count. But at this point, that has not been realized. At this point, it's like the mustard seed. But in the end, it will be the large garden plant. And we know that this is referring not primarily to his physical descendants, but his spiritual, his spiritual descendants and his spiritual descent, who is, seed, who is Jesus Christ. And we know from Revelation that in the end, a multitude that is so great that no one can number them will be gathered around the throne from every tribe and language and tongue and nation in the world. So what began very small will in the end become very great, a multitude so great that no one can count, even greater than the stars of the sky or the sand on the seashore. So this is what Abraham was experiencing in his own day, that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And this is how it was in Jesus's day. And this is how it is in our own day as well, right? It's small, it's insignificant. It doesn't have worldly pomp and worldly power, but in the end, it will become greater than all. Another example, Daniel chapter two. Daniel chapter two. Verses 31 to 45. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. says, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and extraordinarily splendor, uh, was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now I will tell its interpretation before the king. You, are, you, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand, and cause you to rule over them. You are the head of gold. After you, there will arise another kingdom, inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. 
In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron and bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. So there, the stone cut out of the mountain without human hands is the kingdom of Christ, right? But he's also a stone that the builders rejected, right? And in terms of this present world, he's considered insignificant. His kingship is considered nothing. But ultimately, what will happen? What will that stone do to all the kingdoms of this world? These great <coughs> kingdoms, right, represented in this, this um, extraordinarily splendor uh, of this great statue, he will come and crush all of them, and then that stone will itself grow into a large mountain that will never be moved and will never come to an end. This is the same as the mustard seed, right? It starts out small, it starts out insignificant, and yet in the end, it will triumph over all the kingdoms of this world. Now the kingdom of God is in the midst of us, right? It is among the people of God. It is not in its final outward form yet, right? But it will be revealed one day, and when it is, then it will be greater than all the kingdoms that this world has ever seen. Also, Luke 13, 20 to 21 Luke 13, here he is uh, repeating this in Luke chapter 13, 20 to 21, saying, What is the kingdom of God like, and what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. Again, he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. So there, again, it is like unto the mustard seed and then also like the leaven as well. Okay, then one other passage, 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. And verses 11 to 14. First Kings 19, 11. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire a sound of a gentle blowing. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So here, when Elijah is... Uh, 
when he has this discourse with the Lord and these things pass in front of him, the great wind, the earthquake, the fire, right? All of these are uh, great signs of power, right? Fire, the wind, the earthquake, right? You see those things and they're terrifying and you see it obviously that these are great manifestations of power and yet the Lord was in none of those things. But the Lord was in the gentle blowing, right? The gentle blowing. And this is revealing to Elijah that God is not working in these outward forms the way people expect, right? It seems like he's not doing anything. That's Elijah's experience. Where is the Lord in everything that is going on? And yet God confirms to him that he is at work and he is building up his kingdom. It's just very hard to see sometimes, right? It's because of its insignificance to the point that Elijah thinks he's the only one that is left. And yet God confirms to him here that there are 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. So again, it's coming in these insignificant small ways. It's not there in Jerusalem. It's not in Samaria at this time. It's not with the king and with the, and with the queen, but it is taking place. It's just obscure. It's small and it is insignificant. This is the way the kingdom of God is now, but then ultimately it will be revealed. And when it is, it will be greater than any kingdom this world has ever seen because it will uh, cover the entire globe. And there's no king in the history of the world who has ever ruled the entire world. There are some who wanted to, but they did not ever accomplish that feat. And none of them have an eternal kingdom. All of their kingdoms are very short-lived, right? They all eventually die and their kingdom passes to another. And then even their dynasty or whatever kingdom they had, ultimately all of them are broken away. Even as we read in Daniel chapter two earlier, the kingdom of Babylon, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, the kingdom of Greece and the kingdom of Rome. Are any of those kingdoms still intact today as they were back then? No, all of those have been dismantled and obliterated but the kingdom of Christ endures from generation to generation, now in the mustard seed, and then in the life to come, it will be revealed in its full form, and it will be eternal and never come to an end. Verse 33, the parable of the leaven is the same. It's the same point, the same purpose, the same meaning as the mustard seed. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened. Here, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Leaven also is small in comparison to the, the lump or the dough that you have. The leaven is a very small amount that you put in there. And yet, what does it eventually do? It works its way through the whole dough and it has its effect upon all of it. And it transforms it, right? It changes everything and it works in a hidden, unseen, in a secret way. And this is the way it is with the kingdom of God. It is, it is in hidden, unseen, invisible ways. It's taking place in the hearts of men and women. It's in these gatherings like this. This is where the kingdom of God is. And these are invisible to most people. It's unseen by most people. They don't care about these things. They don't recognize it. They see no significance to what is taking place here. And yet this is where the kingdom of God is found just like leaven working in the lump in an invisible, unseen way, so it is with the kingdom of God. Verse 34, all these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. 
He did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Here, Jesus is again speaking to them in parables, right? All things given to them in parables. And we remember in chapter 13, verse 10, Jesus said, his disciples came and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not understand. He's speaking in parables because it has not been granted to the crowds to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But it has been granted to the disciples, and the parable is itself the way to make this distinction, to delineate between the ones it has been granted to and the ones that it has not been granted to. And then in verse 35, this is also to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet in Psalm 78. Psalm 78, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 78, 1, we'll read verses 1 to 4. It says, Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. So there, verse 2, I will open my mouth in a parable, I will utter dark sayings of old. And then if you read through Psalm 78, it is recounting many of the experiences and many of the symbols that were given to the wilderness generation that they did not understand, right? These symbols, the way that God was revealing himself to them were parabolic. They were like parables. They were dark sayings. They were He was uttering these types of dark sayings to the people, and they didn't understand them during the wilderness generation. They did not understand that the manna from heaven represented Christ, that the water that came from the rock represented Christ, that the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire represented Christ. All these things were before them, but they didn't put it together, right? These were like parables to them, like it is in chapter 13, because it was not granted to them to understand these things. So they did not make the connection. And this is being repeated in the ministry of Christ. He's also speaking in parables so that those it is granted to, in the case of the wilderness generation, Moses, Aaron, Miriam, uh, Joshua, Caleb, the righteous, they understood the significance of those things. But the people did not understand the, the significance of those things because it was hidden from them. It was a mystery to them and it was not clearly perceived by them. God delivered spiritual truths to the wilderness generation in these types of physical parables, and the people did not understand them. Most of them didn't. Some of them did, but the majority of them did not. That's the same in Jesus's day. That's why he's quoting Psalm 78. This is what is happening. In the Psalm, they're recounting these things to their children, 
right? Telling them the meaning of them so that they will understand them, so that it will not be hidden from them. Then verse 36. This is the parable of the tares, the wheat and tares explained. Then he left the crowd and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Remember, this was the same as we saw in uh, chapter 13, verses 10 to 17. They are the ones asking for explanation. They're wanting to understand. They're coming to him and they want to understand what he's talking about. And this is why the one who has more will be given and the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. The crowds don't have, they don't have faith. They don't have the spirit. They don't have the work of God among them. So even what they have, right? The parable of the wheat and the tares is gonna be taken away from them. It's not gonna benefit them because they don't understand it. But the disciples, they do have faith. They do have the spirit in them. And so they're going to be given more because they're coming to Christ and they're asking for more understanding, more teaching. Help us understand this. Maybe they understand or perceive a point here or there, but all of it doesn't make sense to them. And so they're going to get more clarity, which will lead to more conviction and they'll have a greater grasp of these things. So they're asking for explanation. Explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. This is also similar to what we've been seeing in Psalm 119. Isn't he constantly asking God to teach him? Asking God to explain to him, give me understanding, open my eyes, help me understand, teach me, teach me, teach me, teach me. He's constantly doing that in Psalm 119. That's the prophet David. And these are the holy apostles who are better than all of us. And they're asking God for teaching. Help me. I need you to teach me. So don't we need to have humility as well? Don't we need to come in this way to the Bible and open it up and ask God to teach us, to instruct us, to open our eyes? Lord, we can't understand. We don't have the ability. We're simple-minded. We're ignorant. We're foolish. And we need you to make us wise. And only you can do it. And we can't even understand the Bible without your spirit guiding us. That's the way that we need to be as well. We need to be like them and ask God to explain and to teach us from his word. And then what does he do? He does. He answers, right? He answers this prayer because they're coming in faith. Coming in faith and they're asking for something good according to the will of God with a good motive, right? They want to understand so that they can know and obey the will of God. And this is what he does for them. Then he explains. He said, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, These are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil and the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are the angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Here, the explanation is given by Christ and it leaves nothing to imagination, right? It's very thorough, very clear exactly what he is talking about. Here, the sower, the one who sowed the seed is the son of man. It is Jesus Christ himself, right? And this he does here currently, he's doing it in 
the flesh in his own person while he's on earth, but he also continues to do this throughout all generations through his spirit and through his messengers who are preaching the word of Christ. But he is the one who is the sower. He is the one who is sowing the good seed. The field is the world. The world is the field. This present world is the field where all this is taking place. It's not the church. He's not talking about the church. He's talking about the world and how it is in this present world. Now, I say that because when I was growing up, this was a common passage used against church discipline. The reason you don't remove someone from the church is because the wheat and the tares. You don't separate them. Christ will do it at the end of the age. Has anyone else ever heard that interpretation? <laughs> well, okay, then I'm the only one. But this is what was commonly said, that whenever there's a troublemaker in the church, we can't do anything about it because of the wheat and the tares. The wheat and the tares. And that, you know, it's not our job to judge people, to harp on them, to cast them out. But that's contrary to what the Bible teaches in Matthew 18 and contrary to what the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where it does teach that, we again, we shouldn't throw people out superficially. We shouldn't throw them out in a hasty manner or without using the proper uh, procedure according to Jesus Christ. And we shouldn't do it for petty matters. But if there is sin and it's unrepentant, then what needs to happen to the person? Then they need to be removed from the church but here he's not talking about the church. He's talking about this present world and how it is in this present world in that believers and unbelievers exist. They exist side by side in this world, not hand in hand, right? Not doing it in that way, but in your neighborhood. Isn't there a believer here and an unbeliever there? One living next to the other in your workplace. Is it all Christians there or is there one believer and many unbelievers there? When you go to Walmart, is there a Walmart that we can go to where it's only for true Christians? There's no such China Mart at all, right? It doesn't exist, <laughs> right? We have to go with the unbelievers. They're all mixed together in this present life. That This is the way it is. The good seed, he says, are the sons of the kingdom. The sons of the kingdom, which are the elect, the believers, the righteous, right? This is the way they would be described. Sons of the kingdom. They are true believers, not merely professing believers, but true believers who have been elected by God, who have been called, who are believing in Christ, and who are living a righteous life and manifesting that through their good deeds. Here, the good seed is not the word of God as it was in the parable of the sower. Right In the parable of the sower, the good seed is the word of God. Here, it is what the word of God produces. Right, The word of God produces sons of the kingdom. And this is who the good seed is. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the evil one, or the sons of the devil, who are reprobate, who are unbelievers, and who are wicked. And here, in the world, the field, the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one grow up alongside one another. The kingdom of God is growing in this present world and it is surrounded by unbelievers, by the sons of the evil one. There is a mixture currently that has not been distinguished in its final form, a complete separation. Now, in terms of the church, in terms of 
our daily conduct, we should be separate from the wicked in that we don't participate in their sins. But it's not like we move to a special part of the world where it's only believers and then there's no unbelievers there. That's not the way that we do it, though there have been those traditions that try to do this and try to accomplish it over the years, but it's always futile and it does not work. So we don't move into monasteries. We don't move into convents or any of those types of things, compounds where we seclude and separate ourselves from the world, right? When we become believers, Jesus does not immediately take us out of this world, but he leaves us in the world and we are around unbelievers, right? We grow up alongside them and we coexist with them, though we don't participate in their sins, we coexist with them in this present life. Also notice the sons of the evil one. They are sons of the devil in that Satan is their spiritual father. They are like Satan, which is brings up another point because uh, I had someone tell me before that only people like the Pharisees and the scribes, they're sons of the devil, but the common people who just don't know any better that they're not sons of the devil. Yes, because it's because I called a kid a son of the devil and I got in trouble at the church I was working at. Uh, this is before I even went to, I didn't even know anyone then. Anyway, but, uh, but here, according to this parable, you're either a son of the kingdom or you're a son of the devil. It's one or the other, right? It's one or the other. And anyone who's not a son of the kingdom is a son of the devil, right? Even if they are uh, uh, have some civility to them, they may be a good neighbor, uh, they may be a hard worker, they may be a good citizen of the land, right? There are people like that, but spiritually they're a son of the devil, right? And that's what he calls them here. And that's what they need to know and understand about themselves. Here, the enemy is the devil. The enemy is the devil. Now, it's important for us to understand that in this parable, it appears that the devil is thwarting, undermining the master. But we know that none of this is happening accidentally. It's not haphazardly. It's not outside of the will of God, right? The devil is working against Christ. And in that way, he is an enemy, but he is not outside of the will of God. He is under the control of Christ and he's doing his bidding contrary to the will of the devil. The devil wants to do evil and he wants to destroy God and his people, but Christ is forcing him contrary to his own will, so much for free will, uh, to do the will of God. And what he's doing here fits into the purpose of God because our coexisting alongside the wicked is for our benefit in this life because it's for our testing so that we will overcome and endure, right? We have to overcome sin and temptation. And where is a common source of temptation for us? It's the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's the sons of the evil one. They're the ones tempting us. They are the ones that Satan uses to tempt God's people in this life. So it is for a purpose, for our benefit, right? So that we can overcome sin, overcome sin and overcome this present world. Then he says, the harvest is the end of the age. The end of the age, the end of this present world. When Christ is revealed from heaven and then it begins the world to come. Right, So it's the end of this present world whenever Christ is revealed and then the world to come is initiated and the reapers are the angels who when Christ comes 
will be the ones that go out and gather the men of this world together, and then they are the ones who separate the wheat from the chaff. And these are holy angels, holy angels of God, so they don't make any mistakes. And they're under the will of Christ, so there's not going to be any mistakes. It's not possible for one of the wheat to be put in with the chaff or the tares. Nor is it possible for one tear to be commingled with the wheat. But it will be a perfect separation, right? Which is, again, in this present life, when people are sowing and gathering their crops, it is impossible for them to do that perfectly, right? There's always a little bit of of tares or chaff mixed in with the wheat, but it's not impossible for Christ. Christ will be able to perfectly separate the wheat from the chaff. The wheat will be gathered into his barn, and then the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. And then in the age to come, then there will be a separation between the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. Not now, but in the age to come. This is when the separation will be manifested in its full, final, outward way. It is happening now in part in that the believers are congregating together. They're meeting together. They're studying the word of God together. They're not participating in the sins of the world. They're coming out from the world in that way. But in terms of physical, visible separation, it hasn't happened yet, but it will in the life to come. Okay, a couple of passages. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 in verse 29. Matthew 24, 29. It says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. So there is the return of Christ. That's when all this will take place. When Christ returns, then his angels will go and they will gather his elect and separate them from the wicked. 25, chapter 25, 31. 2531, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So here, this is when the son of man comes in his glory. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is when all this will take place. Then there's going to be this separation. The angels will be the ones doing it under the will of Christ. Separating, in this case, he calls them sheep and goats. Here in our parable, it's wheat and tear. But it's all the same, all the same meaning. Believers and unbelievers or righteous and wicked. Verse 34, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So here the righteous enter into the kingdom of God that has been prepared for them from the foundation of the world. And they are the ones blessed by my father. 
blessed of the Father. So they will enter into the kingdom of God. And will there be any unbelievers there? Any wicked person there? Any sinner there? No, it will just be them, right? So there will be no wicked person there as there is now in this present life. Then also verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. There the wicked or the sons of the evil one go with the evil one to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And there won't be any righteous persons there. It will only be the accursed ones, those who are accursed by God. And then 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The one to punishment, the other to eternal life. And all of this, again, in when Christ is revealed, on the day of Christ, when he comes, this is when this separation will be made. But currently in this present life, it is the wheat and tares. It's the field and the wheat and tares are growing up together and they have not yet been separated. Also chapter three, verse 12, chapter three, verse 12 says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So there, John the Baptist teaches this principle, this concept as well. He is going to gather the wheat into his barn and then the wicked, he's going to burn with unquenchable fire. Then, Chapter 8, verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 12. It says, the sons of the kingdom, and here he doesn't mean sons of the kingdom like he means in chapter 13. These are unbelieving Jews. Unbelieving Jews. The sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness or in the lake of Fire. That's what will happen to the tares on the day of Christ. Whenever he sends his angels to go and to gather them and to put the wheat into the barn and to cast them into the lake of fire. And then the righteous, he says in uh, chapter 13, uh, in verse 43, Chapter 13, verse 43. The righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The righteous will not be burned with fire, but will shine like the sun. In that, all of their sin will be removed and they will be made perfectly like Christ. Right? Perfectly like Christ in terms of their righteousness. And then they will shine like the stars. And this is as it says in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So the righteous will shine in this way, right? Okay, so that is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Verse 44 through verse 45 or verse 46. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Here, these parables have one and the same meaning, and that is that the kingdom of heaven is like a hidden treasure, a hidden treasure in the field that a man comes across, and then in order to obtain that treasure, he has to sell all that he owns, all that he has, but he does so with joy because what he knows he's going to gain in buying the field. He, he knows that if he gets the field, well, then what else does he get? He gets the, everything on it. He gets the hidden treasure. So he goes and sells all that he has and goes and buys the field because he wants to obtain the treasure. And is he a loser in this transaction? Even though he has to sell all that he has, in the end, he becomes the winner. He gets more because of the treasure, the treasure that is there in the field. And also the pearl of great price. This costly pearl, the merchant finds it, and in order to obtain it, he has to sell everything he has in order to obtain this costly pearl or this pearl of great price. And this is the way it is for those entering the kingdom of heaven. What do we have to give up in order to gain the kingdom of heaven? We have to lose everything. We have to sell everything. We have to give up everything in this life, everything in our sinful life, our sinful past. We have to give all of that up in order to gain the kingdom of heaven. But is what we're giving up worth anything? No, it's all worthless. It's useless. And what we're gaining is an eternal reward, right? So who comes out on top? We do, right? We come out way on top because we're giving up trash in order to gain an eternal kingdom. One that can never be lost, that makes us rich infinitely rich, rich rich beyond measure, spiritually rich, right? And who is the pearl of great price? But our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who is the hidden treasure? But our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And to gain him, we have to give up our lives. We have to give up everything, our family, our life, our possessions, our will, everything about us, we have to give up in order to gain Christ. He has to be number one. But that's the best thing that we can do. Because when we do it, we gain him. And that's why the person does this not begrudgingly, right? He's not kicking and screaming. It says he does it from joy. He joyfully goes. He's happy to sell everything because he knows how rich he's going to be. And this is the way it is when a person's eyes are open to see their sin, the judgment of God upon them, and the way of escape, the salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. They will give up everything in order to gain it. Matthew 16, 24. Matthew 16, 24 through 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. There, we have to give up everything. 
If we want to save our life, we have to lose it in this present life. But then we will gain it in the life to come, and it will be never-ending. In order to get the hidden treasure, the man had to sell all of his possessions. But then he gained the hidden treasure, so he became uh, more wealthy than he was before. He gained a greater wealth than he previously had. He gained a spiritual wealth. An example of this would be Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Philippians 3, verse 1. It says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Now he's going to talk about all the things that he used to possess. And these are the things he had to sell in order to gain Christ. Right, he had to give them all up. Here they are. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. So all those things that he used to boast in, he used to take pride in, they used to be great of great value to him, he gave all of them up. And he can't hold on to those things and have Christ as well. That's how it is with the parable of the hidden treasure. He can't keep his possessions and have the hidden treasure. It's either one or the other. He has to sell the one in order to gain the other. And this is how it was with the Apostle Paul. He had to give up all these things. Whatever was gained to him, he now counts them as loss. They're worthless to him, detestable to him. He doesn't want those anymore. Because what does he gain in Christ? A righteousness of my own, not derived from the law, but the righteousness that comes on the basis of faith. It's the righteousness of Christ. That's what he gains that is infinitely valuable to him. Because without the righteousness of Christ, we cannot see God. We will not be with God, right? We will be cast into the lake of fire. But you can't have the righteousness of Christ while also boasting in your flesh. It's one or the other. And he was happy to give up the flesh in order to gain true righteousness, right? Whenever his eyes were open. Now, this treasure is hidden. Hidden from whom? Well, it's not hidden from the man who found it in the field but it's hidden from the world. They don't see it, right? They're like, no way. I would never give up my money. I would never give up my sins. I would never give up my family. I would never give up 
all the things that I love to follow Christ because they don't care about the righteousness of Christ. They're not thinking about the day of judgment. All they're thinking about is having a good time. And how am I going to have a good time, right, if I can't, uh, you know, do all the things that I love all the time, right? Live in sin. So they don't want it. But the Apostle Paul, he understands what is at stake, that it's an issue of life and death. And without the righteousness of Christ, he's going to go to hell forever. So he'll give up whatever is necessary in order to gain it. Another example, Hebrews 11, 23 to 26. Hebrews 11, 23 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that he was beautiful, a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. The reproach of Christ was a greater treasure than all the treasures of Egypt. What kind of treasure is the reproach of Christ? It's heavenly. It's a heavenly spiritual treasure, right? That's what he saw. He wanted it, and if that meant giving up the treasures of Egypt, then he gave them up, and that's what he did. He sold all that he had in order to gain the hidden treasure of Christ, the reproaches of Christ. And what is the reproach of Christ but his death on the cross, right? That is what Moses saw and understood, and what he desired was to have the benefits of the death of Christ applied to him for the forgiveness of sins, so that he might have eternal life with God. And that is what we must see as well. Okay, verse 47. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here, another parable. The kingdom of heaven, like a dragnet, cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. Here, some take this to be that he's talking about, similar to the wheat and tares, that it's just the difference between the world uh, and what's going to happen. There's believers and unbelievers, and then they're going to be separated at the end of the world. And then others take that to be that he's talking more specifically about the visible church, right? Those who are actually gathered into the visible church, that there's going to be a mixture amongst those who profess to be Christians, some good and some bad, right? Either way, both of these things are true, right? Both are true that he is going to separate the righteous from the wicked in terms of the world, and he is going to separate the true believer from the false believer in terms of the church, right? Both of those will happen. I prefer, I think, the second interpretation that he's talking about the church, that when the kingdom of God is like this dragnet cast into the sea, fishers of men, right? They're casting the dragnet into the sea and then they're gathering people in, right? This is what Jesus said to his disciples, that he would make them fishers of men, 
So they're gathering people in, but when it does, it brings all kinds of fish in with it. Some that are good and some that are putrid, some that are worthless, some that are unclean and detestable. And then those are gathered in and then the angels will ultimately separate, even in the church, the outward church, the good from the bad. Because not everyone who claims to be a believer is a true believer. Some are hypocrites, deceivers, and false brethren or false believers, and they will not escape either. But they will be separated as well, and they will be cast out in that way. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 4, it talks about false brethren. False brethren who came in to spy out our freedom in Christ. So there are false brothers, or in 1 Corinthians 5, it calls him a so-called brother. He's a so-called brother. He's not a true brother because he's manifesting by a sin that he's not. he doesn't have true faith. And even in that case, there will be a distinction and it will be perfect. So the point being, whether it's the world and the world of the wicked and then the world of the believers, it'll be separated. Or if it's in the visible church, it will be separated so that it is only the righteous who will inherit the kingdom of God and all of the wicked, whether they be profane men or whether they be religious hypocrites who claim to be Christians, they're going to go to the lake of fire as well. Only that which is good will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Verse 51, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and things old. Here, having concluded these parables, Jesus is asking them, do you understand what I'm saying, right? Have you understood everything that I have taught you? And they said, yes. And this isn't arrogance or pride, but they did understand, right? They understood what he was saying and they're making the right connections. And this is what we should desire as well, is that when we're taught the Bible, we understand what it means, right? That we come to the right conclusion. Then Jesus says, Every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and things old. Here, he's saying, you have become like a scribe. Now here, the scribe is not like a bad scribe, like the scribes and Pharisees, but a good scribe, right? Being a scribe isn't the problem. Being a bad scribe, that's not good, but a good scribe is one who is properly taught and then who is able himself to teach the Bible to others. And that's why he says, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, right? You are disciples of the kingdom of heaven and you are scribes in that you are going to go and teach these things to other people. You are like the head of a household and now you are going to bring out of your treasure things new and things old. Meaning you're going to teach the word of God and when you teach it, there are things that people know, things that are old, and you're going to remind them of those things. And then there are going to be things that are new, things that they're coming to new understandings of or a new concept, and they're going to understand that as well. They're going to grow in that way. And this is what we're doing when we're teaching the Bible. Not everything that we deal with is something that you've never heard of. There are some things that you've heard of that you need to hear again. And you need it to be both old and you need it to be new because none of us have perfect understanding. We're all growing. So there are new things that we need to be taught and there are old things that we need to be taught and all of those need to be brought forward 
by the scribe who is a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. In 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, this is what the apostle John says when he's teaching the church there. He's teaching them a new commandment, but he says, but it's also an old commandment. And I'm teaching to you it again. So you're hearing it afresh and anew, but you already know it, right? And this is what we are doing in the teaching of the Bible, teaching the same truths over and over and over and over again, so that they are new and old, right? New and old. Chapter 2, 7 and 8. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have uh, had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So it's a new commandment and it's an old commandment at the same time. One in the same. And this is what Jesus is referring to here. Okay, then lastly, 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where does this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So here he returns back to his hometown of Nazareth and is teaching them in their synagogue. And the people take offense at him. They're offended at him because they, they are able to recognize his wisdom, his wisdom in his teaching and his miraculous powers. Those things are obvious. They see that. But then they're asking, well, how did this come about? Where did this man get these things? This wisdom and this miraculous powers. Isn't he the carpenter's son? He's a nobody, right? He's a no name. And his mother and brothers, they're all here with us still. We know them. We know him. He, he was raised with us. We used to play with him in the street. We used to go here and there with him. So where did he get all of this at, right? Who is he? And they take offense at him. And this is why Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own household. That many times people are not able, they will not listen to the word of God if it comes from someone who they are familiar with, from one of their own, because they can't get over the familiarity of the person. They won't listen to the words because they're stumbling over the person. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. That is the problem. And for this reason, he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now, one other side point here in regards to this is he did have these four brothers listed here and then his sisters as well. His four brothers and his sisters, which means he had at least two sisters, right? It doesn't say how many, but at least two. So at least six siblings here. And it's obvious here in this context that these are the children of Mary, right? Right. They are his siblings. So this would be contrary to the Roman Catholic false doctrine that teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary, right? That Mary was a virgin 
before uh, the conception, after the birth of Jesus, and she remained a virgin for the remainder of her lifetime. And that false doctrine is held by Roman Catholics and then also some other Orthodox churches, which are not Orthodox, talk about a misnomer uh, and a lie. Uh, this is the way people are. Like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Well, it's not a church of Jesus Christ, and they're not saints, right, at all. So everything about it is a big, fat lie. And this is the way it is with the Orthodox churches as well, because they're not Orthodox, because they hold to many false doctrines and heresies. Well, one such heresy of the Roman Catholic Church is the perpetual virginity of Mary. But the Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. Actually, here is teaching contrary, that she had at least six other children in, uh, other than Jesus. Yes, she was a virgin at the conception, and she was a virgin when Jesus was born, because Joseph did not know her uh, until he was born. But then after his birth, they had a normal relationship, right? Of a husband and wife, and they had more children. And then at this point, Joseph is dead. By the time that Jesus is an adult, it doesn't tell us how or when that happened, but that he had four younger brothers and several sisters as well, okay? And then several of these brothers become believers, and apostles as well, such as James and Judas later. Okay, so we'll stop there for tonight. Uh, and we've, I don't know what time it is, but we've got a few minutes. Okay, we got maybe time for one question, if it's a good one. So yeah, if it's, if it's not, I'm not going to answer it. So ask at your own risk. I bring that up about Mary because we're coming upon the uh, Christmas time, you know, and they make a big deal about Mary. And uh, and again, she's mentioned in the Bible, but we have to have sobriety and uh, biblical understanding of Mary. Yes, she is greatly blessed, and God did use her in a great way, and we should uh, honor her for that, but she's not co-redeemer with Christ. We should not offer prayers to Mary. That's that's idolatry. And uh, and then this, this notion that she was a virgin her whole life, where, where does that come from? other than out of someone's own mind, controlled by the devil. It doesn't come from the Bible. The Bible's teaching contrary. And, and as we read in Psalm 119, 128 last week, I hate every false way, is what he said. Well, that's a false way. So it should be detestable to us that people would teach that. And, and you know, in John chapter 5, Jesus says that Moses will condemn the Jews on the day of judgment because they were misinterpreting his teachings and using them against Christ. So Moses will condemn them on the day of judgment at the end of John chapter 5. Well, Mary will condemn the Roman Catholics on the day of judgment. And she will say to them, who told you to pray to me? Who told you I didn't need a savior? Who told you I was a virgin my whole life? What's wrong with you people? Right? She will rise up against them on the day of judgment because of this heresy that they've created and this idolatry, this idolatrous worship of Mary and then also of the other saints as well that they falsely worship, like Peter, like Paul, uh, like others as well. They, they'll all condemn them for doing those types of, of superstitious, profane practices. They can't do that. And um, it's not good. Not good. And um, yeah, so, and, and Mary herself confesses that she needed a savior. She herself confesses that. So, anyway, okay, well, that was the question, okay? So I just answered my own question. Uh, Excellent question. Went on with Excellent. another rant and raving about the Roman Catholics. So. Okay, we're good.